वेलकम टू सिन टॉक सिन टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द जेस्चर्स एंड मूवमेंट्स विल थिंक अबाउट जेस्चर्स पोस्चर्स मूवमेंट्स एंड द बॉडी विद इन द स्पेस do all movements comprise of sub movements is the right leg dissimilar from the left leg why do we make the gestures we make when do we start moving what do gestures do to language is all dance three dimensional how are the environment culture and the tools encoded into our movements how do we perform our bodies our gestures universal can movements lie what is the future of our engagement with the space around us and will we continue to become less dimensional we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today डॉक्टर ऑर्को चट्टोपाध्याय इज इंटरेस्टेड इन लिटरी स्टडीज थिएटर फिलोसफी एंड साइको एनालिसिस इज फ्रॉम आई आई टी गांधीनगर डेब्रा मै कॉल शी इज अ कोरियोग्राफर अ मूवमेंट एनालिस्ट अ डांस हिस्टोरियन एंड अ प्रेजर्वेशनिस्ट शी इज फ्रॉम न्यूयॉर्क एंड इज करंटली इन इंडिया डॉक्यूमेंटिंग द डांस रिलीव ऑफ द तिलई नटराजा टेम्पल एट चिदम्बरम and dr snigdha mehta she is a physiotherapist and specializes in body movements she is from mumbai so debra why don't we start with you um uh, you've thought of the body for many years and you performed it in many ways as you think of the body do you think of it in geometric terms mm. uh, what is it what's the conception in your head of of the body well first of all uh, the body has geometric proportions so we find uh, the golden ratio throughout the body and of course there were many artists who depicted these ratios uh, dur for example and uh, oscar schlemmer in the bauhaus and vitruvius and uh, da vinci so our bodies have geometric proportion first of all Secondly, uh as a dancer, I see space as my primary material and having learned a system for describing how we move through space, the qualities that we use for that we use for moving through space and how we shape space, I see movement geometrically. Uh Rudolf Laban was the dance theorist in the 1920s so it's not merely the body which is geometric it's also the movement of it's the body it's the movement of the body that's really that we see geometry and rudolf laban was a movement theorist in the 1920s and it was just at a time when the art world in particular was fascinated with uh, geometry we can yeah, think of cubism suprematism and, that, yeah. and cubism etc and so were dancers and dance and so he created a series of scales within the platonic solids um a dimensional scale for example in the octahedron a diagonal scale in the cube and in the icosahedron two scales an a scale and a b scale 
But one can see these geometric uh, forms in any kind of movement, even of the hand. In mudras, there's an architect in New York who did a whole study of mudras. He's Indian. And the geometry of mudras in the body. So, so essentially, these movements are transformations from one shape to another. Um, they are transformations, but I think everyday movement is is we're right. moving geometrically. It just depends how one wishes to to see movement. Right. Um, and when I say geometry, it's not limited to the platonic solid. I mean, we see all kinds of shapes. You know. Curves and uh, lemniscapes and uh, many different shapes and forms. So, it, but, but are these always three dimensional? So, because the moment you put the body in the space, obviously one would well, it's really jump interesting to that conclusion. It, yeah, one would jump to that conclusion. I think the body as a form is a mass that's three dimensional, but shaping space is something else. We can shape space right. in the geometry of a line. We can shape space in the geometry of a plane, flat, two dimensional. Or we can create volume in space. And uh, over the period of the past 100 years, in our everyday movements, we've moved from being very three-dimensional, riding horses, um, using pre-machine-aged uh, types of volume for everyday food production, etc., to, in the machine age, becoming uh, more two-dimensional with flexion and extension, pulling levers, um, driving autos, and then with the digital age, very one-dimensional. So we have to ask ourselves what happens when these dimensions fall off. You know, what happens to our everyday expression? What happens to our ability to communicate with others? And where do we find... So we're just less volumetric today in the way we we're less move ourselves. Exactly. And I think that the recuperation to that, of course, is, you know, things such as cooking, gardening, <laughs> dancing. Just just move more fully in the space around. Yes. Does that resonate with you, Snigda? I mean, this this whole business of uh, how how volumetrically does one engage with the space around oneself? I mean, is, is that is that Yeah, yeah I do agree with what uh, <clears throat> she's saying. Uh, and yes, um, the movements are becoming uh, less and less now as we uh, as we grow uh, in uh, as we uh, as the evolution goes. Uh, so right from the but one is to move less uh, in terms of distance or displacement. The other is to move in more constrained ways to just access fewer dimensions. Yeah. Um, Yes. Is, is, so is the latter also happening? Do you kind of see that in the way your yes. patients come to you and what you engage with? Yeah, and the um, yeah the maximum problems are because of that. Mm -hmm. The problems that are uh, nowadays that you find that people get backaches and you know even the youngsters studying in school get problems uh, at a very early age. It's because of all this. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And what what is a movement to you, Arko? And we'll come and and kind of tie that up with. Uh, what Deborah and Stinkta have been saying. Um, I mean, why why does a literary studies person, a theater person, I mean, it should have been something incidental, but it looks like it's more than incidental to the way you think about it. Yeah, I guess when we are talking about movement, we are also talking about movement as part of our expressions mm -hmm. and the way movement creates a sort of a continuum with speech, with language, 
but then there are moments so you see it as supplementing language you see it as supplementing uh, our linguistic there is a continuum but typically with disorders perhaps affective issues disorders in that sense or or some disorders that have to do with some repressed affect which is not expressed well there could be gestures that disturb language as well there could be gestures there could be movements that disturb language and that would lead to a speech disturbance as well perhaps mm-hmm. a language disturbance as well so uh very generally speaking i think as a reader of literature one has to be aware of the human body and the way the human body makes meaning in space mm-hmm. to to resonate with something that debra just said and of course it's most patent in a form like theater right. but even otherwise in let's say a novel we are looking at human beings who move mm-hmm. and just off the top of my head something that comes to my mind is a uh, Paul Auster's novel uh the first of the New York trilogy where we have a character who moves across the city mm-hmm. and there's another character tracking the movement mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and there's a way in which that movement generates letters on the page right. and we ultimately get to a point where those movements come very close to the word babel right the tower mm. of babel and so on so right. literature also describes a certain kind of embodied movement through space i guess it has to because you know that's how stories are made the fundamental blocks or the fundamental units of meaning would be bodies moving in space even in literature even in novel there would be certain kinds of literature that are more reflexive on this particular point mm. uh, perhaps a traditional realistic novel wouldn't mm-hmm. be self reflexive on this particular question but even in a traditional realistic novel let's say there would be a walker let's say and there would be a description of the walker for a certain number of pages and we might get a certain geometry of movement there as well in terms of the description it may not be uh, acutely conscious of seeing that movement as part of communication uh for example what happens in that oster example i just uh gave in a way the question is that one one things of the more literal literary forms mm. whatever that might mean how does how does one convey the more paralingual aspects how does one convey how the character or the protagonist or whoever the characters at that point in time what their postures might be how are they in space and things of that sort like how yeah. how, how how do you how do you denote dance in in a novel novel one yeah so so without obviously be, reducing it to a description which which yeah, would yeah. be laborious and which would break the break the form in many ways yeah cases. yeah now with without going into some sort of a diagrammatic representation right uh, perhaps there are some limitations of the uh the written form so to speak and it can only describe movement in a certain kind of way but having said that uh there are so uh coming at it from a less formal and more thematic perspective there are novels about dance for example sure so again something that i can recall at this point is james coetzee's latest novel which is the second installment of the first one was called the childhood of jesus this one is called the uh the school days of jesus and in this uh 
rather enigmatic allegorical novel about a place which doesn't exist. We have this little boy who is now going to a dance academy. Mm. And the the novel, among many other things, is about dance pedagogy. But it's a very peculiar uh, thematic connection that... Uh, that the writer in this case operates with. So the idea in the book is dance is a way of generating number from metaphysical space. And the book directly theorizes two kinds of mathematics. One which is uh, in the ground, as it were, the other that comes from the stars. And you invoke numbers from the stars through dance. So there's a peculiar way in which dance and mathematics are conjoined in that book, which again returns to what I think Deborah was saying initially, that there's a there's a geometric pattern to the body, but there's also a geometric pattern to the way we move in space. Do you think of movement geometrically, uh, Snigdar? Uh, yes, uh, yes, movements are geometrical, but uh, they're also at all times multidimensional. Mm. Uh, the whole body moves in a, a particular joint may move in a unidirectional manner, mm -hmm. but the whole body moves usually in a multidimensional way. What does that mean? So if I move my ankle, if you move your, if, my, uh, if I move my right ankle up, yeah, that could be unidirectional, but there are so many other bones that are involved. Mm. So they could be moving, there could be some rotation in some of the other bones. So that's a multidirectional movement. Right. So yeah. it's very difficult to isolate one movement without affecting any other. In fact... Um, and as a corollary, would it happen that if there was some 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 dysfunction somewhere, some other movement somewhere, some, somewhere far away gets impacted? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the least movement is of importance to all nature. The entire ocean is affected by a pebble. <laughs> right. So this was Blaise Pascal and uh, I think that's very true that even a, an, an ankle movement can affect your neck. So yes, um, one part of the body moving always affects another part. And we see this very often in a dysfunction. Mm -hmm. uh, we, For example, if I have somebody who has an, a severe ankle pain mm -hmm. and I examine them, there's nothing wrong with the ankle. It's mm -hmm. coming from the spine mm -hmm. right. or it could be the other way around. Right, right. And are there, are, there, are there parts of the body which are more tightly coupled together than the others? Um, yes, some parts like, of For the example, when you, if you had to examine uh, an ankle which is faulty in some way or is giving pain or whatever, mm -hmm. um, are there candidate other body parts that you would look at first before you move to the next set and so on, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. so if the uh, person comes with an ankle pain, mm -hmm. I would definitely look at the more proximal parts, that means waist down first, sure. the entire posture. So does the body have up and down and left and right? Is, Absolutely. Is it as zonal as that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at the entire picture. And but, but do you think of body in up and down terms? Up and down, right and left. Uh, frontal plane, sagittal plane, mm. transverse plane. We look at all of these things. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I would agree. I mean, yeah. that's exactly, I mean, though, that's just a structure. So I would agree that not all movement is geometry in terms of line plane volume. Mm. There are organic forms, but it's how we shape space. So for example, in a kinesthetic level, mm -hmm. I may be doing flexion extension and creating 
a line in, in space or abduction, adduction, which means adding to or taking away from the center of the body, which usually means I'm creating a two-dimensional plane. Or on a kinesiological level, using rotation, which really sculpts space and allows me to feel volume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of up and down and in terms of describing, for example, a character, you know, the love on material is interesting because if we lift our weight up, we get this sense of lightness. So the body moving through space going up, you know, we see and yeah. feel lightness. Whereas if we move down, like in sumo wrestling, etc., you know, <laughs> we feel more strength. Mm-hmm. Right. If we narrow our body, you know, we can focus. Or if we have to do an activity in which we have to focus, we narrow our body. If we widen our body, we take in more of the horizon. Hmm? Which is where, if 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 one were to use a form like dance to p- perform an epic poem or to perform a play, things of that sort, mm-hmm. there's probably an interesting way in which that confluence happens because there's a way in which you can relay that, maybe a lot more easily than what you might in the more literal way. In the more literal, um, there's a resonance of sort, presumably. Mm. That's what choreography is, I would imagine. It is. It is. I, you know, I mentioned that being in Chidambaram, Chidambaram means uh, chit is heart and Ambaram is space. And I took a boat ride yesterday to um, Elephanta Island. And it was the first time that I had such a, an immense physical vista because Chidambaram is a small town and really the temple is the center. So when one enters the main sanctuary and the Jit Saba, which uh, inside is the Kanaka Saba, where Nataraj sits. The Jit Saba is, is actually anthropomorphic. It represents the heart. It has two chambers. Uh, it has a roof, a golden roof of 21,600 tiles that represent the number of breaths we take in a day, secured by, I think, 77 or 79,000 nails, which represent all the nerves in the body. It's very anthropomorphic. But there, the sense of space is, is ambaram means like ether or mm-hmm. outer space. Or, but so one can be there in front of Nataraj feeling a, an infinity of space. But it was so interesting to me yesterday because I, in New York, I live near the ocean. And I didn't realize how much I missed these large physical vistas, but, you know, there's another kind of space um, that I've discovered this year. So, in Chidambaram. In Chidambaram. <laughs> and they would say that there too, Chidambaram, <laughs> just like that. And yeah. everyone would shake their head, yeah, we know what, we know what you mean. <laughs> is, is movement necessary? Yes, absolutely. Movement is life and life is movement. What for? What does, what does movement do? I mean, why... You know, one kind of gets the cliches, and most cliches are true, so presumably it's true, but why any, Why is it necessary to move? Um, any living organism, it's it's a way of making out, if, it, if that organism moves, that means it is living, otherwise it would become non-living. <laughs> sure. <laughs> mm. So... No, but what does it do physiologically? I mean, one is to move for, you know, to, to look for food and things of that sort, but... Irrespective of that, um, you know, obviously we have a somewhat sedentary lifestyle today and so on. And that's, that's kind it of keeps fun. life going. Like it's the heart beats, the blood vessels, the blood is moving all the time. The nerves are moving. 
the fascia is moving. So every life, it's the essence of life, movement in the body. But the heart would beat even if I don't move, right? Yes, but there's still a movement inside the body. It's still a movement. I I would agree with that. Ermgard, my teacher, took us to the hospital sometimes, and there would be patients uh, who would be on dialysis. But she would say, look at how they're breathing. Mm, And she would move in there with the breath. Yes. Yeah, as a place Mm. to start. Mm. And, of course, then there's that relationship to gravity, you know, as I was just saying, moving up and down. And So are the internal movements rhythmic? Almost always so? I mean, uh, I mean of um, course, one, you know, one knows a thing or two about things like heartbeats, which is, which is presumably rhythmic. But I mean, It has a, it, they all have different uh, rhythms, mm-hmm. different frequencies, uh, but they're all uh, supposed to move at a particular frequency. And when at you a say they, what do you mean? Me- meaning all the internal organs, um, like the blood would move at a certain pace, uh, the nerves move at a certain pace, the fascia would move at a certain pace. Hmm. So they all have their own rhythms. What is what is fascia? Fascia is, um, well, uh, in layman's term, if I talk about the Spider-Man, right. uh, <laughs> the Spider-Man has all these webs all over. That's mm. the easiest way to understand. There's a fascia in every part of our body mm. and which of which not too much is known uh, till recently. Uh, they could be a cause of pain, discomfort, um, pay, uh, you know, any any problem. Uh, and which uh, and we've always focused on muscles and bones and nerves and blood and, vessels. And, and fascia is across the body. It's not. Uh, it's everywhere in the body. So it's, it's some kind of connecting tissue. Absolutely, or? it's a connective tissue. So if I, my fascia is injured at uh, in the leg, I could still get a headache. And so, how does one injure the fascia? Is, is it just under the skin, or where is it? Um, it's it's a little deeper than that mm-hmm. and uh, when you put your hands on the body of a person there are many ways in which we mobilize that fascia mm-hmm. to heal a person mm-hmm. um, and uh, when we put our hands on the body we can feel the fascia moving even if my hands are static on the body I can and I'm quiet my touch is very very light I can feel and there's a movement that I can feel and mm-hmm. when I release that fascia the patient feels much better. How deep is it? Does it? Uh, uh, it's not very deep. It's not as deep as the bones. It's it's under the um, deeper part of the skin. Right. That's so interesting. And so it's some kind of a global organ. It's, yes. It's, it's a little bit like the skin. It's it's all yeah, over. Yeah. It's all over. Yes. So yeah. in that very sense, liquid, it's not really yes. a part. Yes. Very in pardon? that sense, it's not really a part. I mean, it's not like it's in one part of the body. It's it's kind of all over. It's a global organ. Yes. Absolutely. That's, are there other organs of that sort? Uh, all uh, not really. I think uh, what we call uh, they they are attached to different parts of the body. Like they could be attached to the bones. They could be attached to the muscles. They could be attached to your digestive system. But it's one organ on the yeah. whole. Because yeah. Unlike the bone, for example, it's not like we have one bone. We have like two hundred and six bones or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. So this we have is one fascia. Yeah, one fascia, and that is why it's very mm. interesting. So as I said. If I uh, move my hands uh, on, on, I can release a fascia uh, in a certain way. Or if I don't move my hands on a certain part of the body with a very, very light touch, I can actually feel my hands moving involuntary, releasing that fascia. And there could be knots and knots of those fascia which get released 
Yeah. No, you brought up a great point, Nigda, and that is this whole question of voluntary and involuntary, right? And there are there are movements, and not all movements are volitional. I mean, there are involuntary movements, and this mm. is really the reason why people ascribe some value to things like body language and what we might be conveying, whether or not we want to, and so on. I mean, does that does that make any sense to you? And yeah, so. How, as, as, how does one capture yeah, so that as, aspect, especially yeah. in the context of theater, for example? Yeah, so I was I was thinking about a couple of things there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get. And to there's that a psychoanalyst in you, so <laughs> maybe even to that part of you. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, so I was, I was thinking about these um, these cultural uh, identifications that we have made. Uh, of course, there's a scientific basis for it, but it's also a cultural identification that movement is life right. and uh, how does it uh, respond to the way we use the word movement metaphorically mm-hmm. when we move out of the corporeal register of movement mm-hmm. when we think of movement as social progress movement as something that is going to create change right. in a social and political sense so there's also that notion of movement as life there Mm. for society Mm. to change and so on and Mm. so forth. So, uh, but it's also interesting that a certain, and again, I am uh, going back to theater here, I'm I'm thinking of certain images of the static body in Samuel Beckett's works and how some of the work also challenges this particular assumption that a static body is lifeless. Mm. Precisely because there is internal movement uh, and so, for example, there's a beautiful scene in uh, Rough Theatre 2, uh, a, a play that uh, lies pretty low in the canon, in the Beckett canon, so to speak. There's a there's a scene where a person is described and this, this play is almost like a trial play. This guy is on trial and he is like a static image on the verge of the stage as if he's about to jump from the terrace. And there are two people not interrogating him. He doesn't speak. He, in fact, doesn't even look at the audience. He's looking away. And there are two people putting out charges after charges on him. And they're reading from this massive book as if they are, uh, in that sense, uh, agents of law, so to speak. Now, there's a particular moment which they read out as a testimony. And the moment is about this person, the the convict, so to speak. And he is looking at something which is uh, lying on the road and he's observing it very carefully. And the person who witnesses this man doing this says that I came back two hours later and he was exactly in that position looking at that thing with that rapt attention, he didn't move a bone. Mm. And there's a certain assumption there that this guy is, there's something wrong with him. Yeah, He's not alive in the healthy sense of the term because there's no movement as displacement. Yeah. But movement is not only displacement as I think yeah. the, the discussion that we were having uh, makes me think. But then to, to go back to... The, so you mean there could be... Accompanied internal events, which which yeah is not and it's it's expressed. not just the it's not just the fact that he's alive. He's very uh, passionately observing an object, and in fact, there's another. I, I should <laughs> add to this that then whatever that is, that little thing, maybe uh, I think 
the the expression in the text is a lump of dog shit or something like that and then uh, this guy in order to check whether this person is attentively following this object nudges that thing mm-hmm. right and he notices how his eye moves as the object changes position right so that observation that that very uh, almost a Trust meditative observation this. as it were yeah. that is also movement yeah yeah that is yeah. also movement and and we talk about uh, movement having intention mm-hmm. which has a very particular quality what like do you mean by I, intention well if i have the intention to overcome gravity and become very light in my expression for example it would be different than if for example i'm in pain and i'm walking in a way to be very careful which we often call more passive or for for example if i want to make an impact and want to have my feet heard you know on the floor and walk in such a way that someone hears me and i want to have an impact that's very different than if i'm lowering myself in space with passivity right one has intention one doesn't and they come across very differently so in the psychiatric ward you know we would call a patient who is very passive in their weight maybe depressed passive in the weight See, I I went to Laban because I wanted to say that they're very passive in their weight as right. opposed to they're very depressed because what's that? You right. know, depressed can be can look many ways. Right. But that's more specific to me. So one can we say that uh, if there is intention as you describe this man that uh, you know it's it's an active movement. Yeah. Uh, which is different than being spaced out and standing there looking at something without focus without you know intention or passion and just to connect that uh, maybe connect the clinical and the theatrical in that sense so there was this um, i think it was a year back or maybe two years back there was this uh, performance of a beckett play called not i and this is a very peculiar play where we have one uh, small image uh, a sort of a close up image i'm using a cinematic metaphor it's a play but nevertheless it's about lips moving and that's mm-hmm. exactly what the audience sees there's no face there's no head there's no subject in that sense it's only two lips moving and uh, and it's 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 delivered the lines are delivered at a very fast pace and it's almost impossible to decipher it which is part of what the play is about as well now um someone with tourette syndrome mm. performed that play a couple of years back one mm. year back or a couple of years back and uh, so that's so an involuntary movement yes. right yes. Huh? Yes. would that be accurate yes uh, yeah. in fact the movie hitchki yeah uh, is all about that. the tourette syndrome yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah. Mm. right right and the interesting thing is so as as watching this interview with this uh with this girl who was performing it and she was very passionate and she said that well i i don't know much about beckett but when i read that play it spoke to me it spoke to my condition in certain <laughs> ways <laughs> and throughout the interview we see her banging her uh, banging her chest and saying two words uh, biscuit and then hedgehog <laughs> so it's 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 really interesting from of course from a a, a certain uh, scientific dimension it would be a different uh, nature of engagement but from a psychoanalytic perspective what really struck me was how she has found these words and she was in fact she was enlisting words that she had used earlier 
So she has somehow found signifiers to make the tick work. Mm. And biscuit is that word. And mm. it's just amazing. So that's, that's, I would call that a sort of a... You mean it's compatible with Tourette's syndrome? So that, that word, somehow, when she bangs her chest and says biscuit, she's able to not control the tick, but she's going to, she's able to signify the tick. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Know, make it into somehow language. Somehow incorporate it within that's the So that's, that's a wonderful example of a gesture which is involuntary and disturbing, but then the subject is able to turn it into language. Yeah. Yes, when, ritualistic language, but language. When do we start moving? I mean, do, do, uh, when do we start moving, Snigla? Even uh, at about seven to eight weeks uh, in the womb. Yeah. Uh, when we are only and seven what, what weeks old. What kind of movement is it? is it? I mean, clearly we're not doing uh, uh, yeah, somersaults. So there are no, yeah, there are no arms, no legs. It's just a little, uh, you know, head and a little tail, actually. But this is expensive. Expressive kind of movement. This is not just the heart beating or things like that. No, sort because that's no. kind of obvious. But this no, is no. this is a movement of the little one, uh, which is which is just you know uh, you can call it a head and a tail. It looks more like an animal at that point of time. And so, and this kind of a movement responds to the world outside. Yes, it responds uh, very soon. Not at seven to eight weeks, but uh, within a few weeks of uh, after that. it can listen to the sounds outside it it can respond in fact to the mother's emotions mm-hmm. all the ex- uh, emotions that the mother experiences goes through the placenta to the little one and of course we have the story of abhimanyu who got out of the chakra view and you know right. we know that story so yes uh, the emotions and the sounds that uh, the so the uh, he's constantly listening to the mother's sounds the mother talking and they are familiar with that when they are born yeah uh, you know so you use the word emotions a couple of times and you know you're obviously a physiotherapist so it's primarily the body that you deal with um but um, how okay. how and where do emotions come in and when and when is it kind of meaningful and mm-hmm. when is so it so usually a thought precedes an action or a movement but uh, we uh, we have something called the as if principle mm-hmm. where um the if you if you hold a certain posture like a a dro- uh, uh, you're depressed and you have a drooping posture right but if you turn it around and you have an erect posture the thoughts change the way you think changes that's called the as if principle right. it's very interesting so you your emotions actually um so are, there's a, uh, some kind of feedback loop back into yeah, your thoughts yeah, from your yeah, from your posture yeah, from your your, uh, your mindset can change just by changing the, your posture and your movement which is the whole premise of dance movement therapy yes yeah yeah mm. what what is dance movement therapy not able to do of course i'm right. i'm sure that there must be That's a tough quite question. a lot <laughs> <laughs> what can it not do Uh I've only experienced what it can do so I kind of know that I can answer that. What does it can do? Well, it depends what? of course the practitioner. Now I I approach things uh using archetypal psychology. So oftentimes I would uh, and I often gave workshops uh, on movement and I would ask uh, the participants to allow themselves to be moved. I wanted them to wait. for that impulse because it's very easy for us to make the decision to move to have a thought and then move but to wait for an impulse 
and to be moved by something is a much deeper, I think, experience that reaches into the, I think, the collective unconscious or the unconscious, personal unconscious. I mean, maybe the the trick of something like this as a principle is to somehow get to that stage eventually. It, uh, yes, and it's very hard. Sometimes people would sit for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. which was fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they were not moved. And, you know, in our culture, where we're moving all the time, to be still and wait and listen is a, it's a luxury. It's a luxury. And it's a necessity, I think, because we don't know those impulses any longer. Right. Is there yes. such a thing as over-movement? So, I mean, it's, it's... Uh, yes, excessive movement of a particular part of the body would definitely lead to a dysfunction. So, so this is just uh, regular uh, wear and tear of bones and joints and things of that sort, or there's something uh, else at work? Well, uh, yes, uh, regular wearing off of a joint. For example, the knee can move, uh, or, uh, it can only become straight or bend. Mm. But sometimes it bends backwards. Mm. And that can cause a series of problems in the body, it, right from the foot to the, uh, to the shoulders. The neck. So, for example, the gymnasts were doing mm. amazing contortions yeah. At, yeah. at a young age. They wear mm. out much faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, yeah. By the usually they are pre-puberty when they start off, and they are very very flexible. Their ligaments are very lax because of the hormonal changes. Mm-hmm. So they can move much more, mm. and uh, and then by the time they are about uh, thirty or forty, they uh, they their joints wear out much faster. And um, there are certain uh, sports which make uh, give injuries much more um, often than um, other sports, like ballet dancers. We uh, mm. we treat a lot of ballet dancers who, because they're on their toes all the time, right? Uh, you know that is not a normal posture for walking. So because they're on the toes all the time, their foot shape changes, their knees changes, their hip changes, mm-hmm. and we uh, we uh, get a lot of dysfunction. A later age. So not all dances are natural in that sense. I mean, there there, there is a way in which, you know, oh. one is kind of defying yes. physical constraints and boundaries and gravity and all, 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 all sorts of things. Absolutely. But do we do we move similarly around the world? Is there something cultural about it? Is there something ar- about the environment around us, about the culture around us, about the tools around us, which changes the way we move? I think there are differences, you know, uh, between cultures. But I think there are also... Some universals, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, usually having to do with survival or need. So, for example, stop seems to me it to be a gesture like that work. would be recognizable in almost any culture or eat. Um, but, you know, a very interesting uh, folklorist named Alan Lomax, uh, along with a, a movement analyst, my teacher actually, and an anthropologist, went around the world, and or they were, actually they looked at films of dances around the world and categorized them according to climate, and saw that in colder climates people move with their torso or their trunk in one unit, whereas in warmer climates one sees more. Multi-units, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and such as uh, Tahiti, Pol- Polynesia, Africa, etc. So and they, also, so they, they looked at it in terms of um, mm. wooden. They were looking at pre-industrial cultures, and in cultures that used wooden instruments, it was more one-dimensional because the wood would break. 
<laughs> but with metal instruments, it was more two-dimensional, mm-hmm. such as, you know, chopping with an axe or carving mm-hmm. a mask. And then as one progressed up uh, the scale of methods of food production, you know, one sees more three-dimensional movement. So, uh, and the, also division of labor. They, they found that in more matrilineal cultures or in cultures that value women, such as Polynesia, there's much more articulation in the torso. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and conversely, the opposite in the opposite case. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. They, they show a clip of Inuits um, who are uh, holding a, ba- a baby, you know, over a warm fire, and uh, they are just giving him their fingertips, uh, and he's holding on to these fingertips, and they're moving him up and down, and then it shows them piercing fish through the ice with very linear movements. And then there's a game that the Inuits play where they all have their spears. They're standing in a circle and they, they jab their spears in these linear fashions so that their tips touch. Right. And then they come back. And it's, right. <laughs> it's all one-dimensional. I mean, it's fascinating. That's crazy. Yeah. But uh, so you see this compatibility, or you see this reflection of language, I think, and... Uh, Climate and uh, division of labor, tools, etc. That that all influence Are movement style. Universal? And how does one how does one perform a Beckett play in Japan? Or you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting question because so I think uh, there was a point when in Japan, well, they were asked to pick a modern play and they picked Waiting for Godot. Right. And there was a reason why they did that, according to them. They were asked this question, why waiting for God or why did you pick Beckett? And uh, of course, Beckett has written pantomimes and, and, and you know, there are two, two mimes that he wrote, Act, for, Act Without Words 1 and 2. So uh, they were aware of that. But they somehow felt, the Japanese theatre workers, that Beckett's plays were close to no theatre and <laughs> the, the traditions mm, there and so on. So yeah. so yeah, but but in terms of that question of whether uh, whether gestures can be universal, I, I, w- I would agree with Deborah. I think it's there are some universal gestures, but having said that, there are certain gestures which are also cultural because they are contextual and they have a very specific context. So, for example, uh, I'm thinking of. Uh, uh, a sort of a religious gesture that we sometimes do in India, where we, uh, where we raise our hand and uh, touch our forehead and then our heart, so to speak, and then go down. I'm not entirely sure whether this gesture would communicate exactly this particular meaning outside of a certain cultural ethos. So, I think it depends on the gesture that we are talking about. Having said that, there are gestures which uh, cut across. And uh, th- so, but 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 yeah. would you say that these gestures are independent of the language faculty? So this independent is a, of yeah. Language? So this is a huge debate, in fact, in linguistics whether gesture could be seen as a continuum or whether gestures are a different animal altogether. Yeah, whether they are so, language of some sort or they are yeah, not. Whether there is a language of gestures or whether they are something Something different. else, some other entity. But again, yeah. from a psychoanalytic perspective, and again, from a very factual perspective as well, uh, human babies make sound first before they can construct sentences. And generally or typically, there is a gap between the two. 
but they're known uh, to mimic gestures very early uh, on yes inside yes, the womb yeah. inside the womb you can uh, sometimes when you do the sonography you can capture a baby smiling right and so mm. you know i don't think there's any cultural reason for that baby, baby smiling smile inside the womb yeah <laughs> but they they <laughs> Unless the mother ate something really yeah. delicious, <laughs> maybe yeah, or they love the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> they need to check exactly what they ate and yeah, whether that's exactly. the cultural thing. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So I think gestures come very early on. Some some of them are very natural to that person. Maybe the other way of uh, flipping this and coming at this question is that, for example, you must be dealing with injuries in different shapes and form and. I don't know whether you've thought about this or spoken to your colleagues elsewhere. Are there different kind of injuries which are common in different kind of cultures? By cultures, we just mean uh, places. Uh, Let's just say places. I, I wouldn't say in different kinds of cultures, but different kinds of sports definitely give uh, different kind of injuries. Sure, because they're just different kinds of stresses. In yeah, kind of yeah, and uh, there's a difference between the girl playing uh, the female playing the same sport versus a male playing the same sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're more likely to, for example, in um, uh, anterior cruciate ligament injury that occurs in the knee very commonly mm-hmm. is maximum seen in football and soccer players mm-hmm. and more seen in females than in men, mm. uh, in males. So, uh, yes, uh, there is a tendency for certain injuries to occur in certain kind of sport. I wouldn't say culture. But yeah, more. I think that that yeah. may be extending it a mm. bit far. Sorry, we interrupted you, Orko. You, oh, you, you were talking about this whole business of whether gestures are universal. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, I think gestures are universal. At least certain kinds of gestures are universal. And then uh, when we come down to specific cultures, there could be gestures which would not cut across perhaps and and create confusions as well sometimes so but having said that uh to to uh perhaps uh talk about that particular very debatable relationship between language and gesture uh there's a certain way in which gestures are also considered to be origins of language which mm-hmm. might go back to what mm-hmm. Sikdar just said mm-hmm. about uh, mm-hmm. uh and so 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 gestures as origins of language is something that perhaps we could think of. But there's there's again a, a very, I guess, fundamental question. What What is a gesture? How do we define a gesture? Is it a body movement? Is it a sound which doesn't necessarily mean a word? A sound which hasn't shaped itself into a word, I mean. So in, in a certain uh, school of psychoanalysis, the Lacanian school, when we talk about language, we talk about language in two different dimensions. One is the semantic dimension, where it makes sense. Right. The other is the sensorial dimension, where it is a sound unit. Right. And the sound unit part of language, before it gets organized in a lexicographic way, that first purchase of language is more sonic than anything else. And that's what I mean when I say the child picks up sounds first. So there's... In, in theoretical terms, this is called an entry of language into the subject. But the subject hasn't yet entered into language. How does one so listen a, to or how does one receive gestures? Hmm. Um, is, is it only visual? I mean, is, is there such a thing as if you, if you had dancers together and not just a solo dancer? I mean, one would imagine, I mean, roughly the way one thinks of it is that you just... You draw inferences visually. Visually, you just look at somebody and 
you kind of infer. I don't necessarily look at gestures. I look at movements and movement phrases. We talk about phrasing because mm-hmm. usually, you know, we don't speak with just a gesture. You know, it's a string of movements which we define as a phrase. But back to, I just want to say something about right. language and uh, movement. An anthropologist came to see me and she had tapes of her field work in Africa. She said, I want you to take a look at this. She was doing, ling- she was a linguist. So we were watching the movements, and they were very circular of this tribe. And um, both the initiatory dances of the adolescents and uh, some other dances. And I said, well, it's very two-dimensional. You can see here how plain it is. And she said, well, that's really interesting because as linguists, we say that their language is two-dimensional. So I, I think that there's a... What does a real, it mean for a language to be two-dimensional? Well, I, I can't answer that. Well, she she said that. But for, for me, I mean, that was, uh, it was revelatory yeah. that, that she said that. But, you know, I've seen, you know, we have this sense of space around us, uh-huh. a, a personal space. Yeah. In the Middle East, one can come very close to someone else, you for example. You mean in terms of proximity? Proximity, and yeah. there's a whole field of proxemics. Right. You know, Americans tend to have large kinospheres, you right. know, I'm very expressive. And also, you know, if we talk about accents, and like I have what we call explosive phrasing. I get very excited. And at the beginning of my phrases of movement, that's where I put the accent. Some people put them at the end. Some right. people put them in the middle. And that really gives a rhythm and a color to movement. But back to proxemics... Here in India, in America, you know, we all hug and kiss each other all the time, yeah. saying hello, Don't try that goodbye. In India too much. But not, but here in <laughs> India, it's been very difficult for me, who's a big hugger and kisser, to not do that and to keep my hands closer to me and to have a very different sense of space. Having said that, we Indians tend to get very close to each other without the hugging and the kissing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like when we have our workshops um, uh, with uh, the Western world, you know, the teachers from the Western world, everybody, uh, you know, in the Western world would stand far away from each other to observe, whereas we Indians tend to get close to each other and really... Uh, you know, get and and those teachers from the Western world feel a little claustrophobic, I think. Mm. So uh, we don't hug or kiss, but we actually tend to get very close Is to each other. Is there anything psychological about movements? I know we've touched upon this whole notion of emotions a while ago, but Deborah brought in this angle of personal space mm. and, you know, the more proprioceptive part of things and what you include as being a part of your space and how much of the space around you is yours versus something that is shared versus being somebody else's and so on. Um, Do you you have to think of that at all as you Uh, deal with movements uh, and injuries and things of that sort? uh, What what does one include as a part of one's own space, you know, around one's own body? So, so, you know, obviously this space is not mine, but the the space very close to me is mine. Right. Right. So, So you're talking of the culture again? No, again, I'm, I'm I'm talking of it at the level of physiotherapy. Does that does that change a posture? Does that change a stance in the world? Does that change the way we move? Yeah, it oh, does. Yeah. It does for sure. Hmm. It does. It, ch- it changes your posture. It, ch- it changes the way you move. Yeah, intimate space yeah. versus you yeah. know, social space yes. or formal space Absolutely. or informal space. 
the way you, the way we touch our patients the way we touch our patients is very different uh, for example when i go um, you know any of these western countries i have to take permission before i touch uh, right you know, you know and whereas in india we normally i mean uh, the patient that code is established the yeah, moment you're there it's as established a i mean right. that we touch our patients but right. there we usually would take can i put my hand on your shoulder mm. right mm-hmm. versus that's an interesting question because in in mental health and specifically i'm thinking of psychoanalysis this has always been a major question whether mm. to touch the patient oh, or yeah. not so the first phase the pre psychoanalytic phase of freud's uh, career when he was a hypnotist he used to touch patients and and there are some pretty scandalous things that happened uh, uh, well so yeah I, i'm i'm not talking about the scandal part of you but i think touch is a very important thing which immediately calms down the patients mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, we are lucky to i'm lucky to be in this profession because we touch all our patients whereas a cardiologist for example may not touch at all and when you touch a patient and your touch conveys a lot of thoughts meanings emotions mm. to the patient also it kind of makes sense certainly yeah. so i'm not disputing yeah. that at all the way you how? touch the way you touch the patient they they really half their half our battle is won like the pain decreases quite a bit mm-hmm. versus if i just talk to the patient across the table and tell them that you have an ankle problem and these are the exercises you should be doing versus i touch them i examine them and then i uh, prescribe whatever i need to it makes a big difference why and i how? think as a human being we all like to be touched mm-hmm. we like to be touched so uh, you know like um, you know when you hug a person they uh, i mean in the western world they love to be hugged mm-hmm. and if you keep your, your, yourself away from that it, it just conveys Uh, doesn't convey that kind of love emotion positive emotion right so it must be why the sure and you know i think there's something interesting happening here right orko because i think when 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 debra says what she says gestures don't necessarily need to be only of the body i mean there could be something gestural something something broader isn't it can, can there be something gestural in speech something gestural more broadly speaking yeah so this this one way in which if we are metaphorizing the word i mean mm-hmm. one way of looking at this could be the entire connotative layer of language right. is gestural right in the sense that we indicate things through language and that's not at the level of denotation that's not at that's the level not of the surface meaning yeah but this this discussion is uh, i can't sort of resist the temptation of uh, uh giving an anecdote which is uh, quite a famous anecdote in psychoanalytic circles so the french psychoanalyst jacques lacan who was quite famous or infamous for his idiosyncratic ways of doing analysis mm-hmm. for example he would cut down the time and have uh, this thing called variable sessions mm-hmm. whereas a freudian analysis would typically go on for an hour a lacanian anal- analysis could be 2 minutes as well depends right. on the intervention and the cut So uh the the particular incident that I have in mind so this is a uh, a lady who has gone through the world wars and mm-hmm. the horrors of the war and she was almost on the verge of being caught by the gestapo and she would have bad dreams about this and she would tell Lacan all these uh, uh issues that 
She's been having problems with sleeping and so on and so forth. So Lakwa did one thing, supposedly, and this this is, so we can see this in a documentary. It's the Analizend who has come out and said this, that one day Lakwa, while she was talking about the Gestapo, Lakwa came close to her and caressed her on her cheeks and then said the word Gestapo slowly, Gestapo, which means a gesture, a gesture of kindness a gesture of care. And she says in the documentary that somehow, I'm not saying that it relieved me permanently, but from then on, whenever I thought about the word Gestapo, I also thought about that gesture, Gestapo. Right. So right. he played on the homophone there and generated another signifier, which is a typical Lacanian game. But yeah. then right. I think he was very good at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's brilliant. That's beautiful. What is the future? What's the future of movements? Are we? I mean, is there is that an evolution in the way we move? Because clearly, I mean, if, if if things have to do with the tools around us and whether somebody uses metal or wood and so on, it it must be getting encoded into the way we move. Uh, what's the future like? What's the future likely to be like? Of how we move, of how we interact with each other, of our distance to each other, of how we walk. Well, I can't, you know, I go back to this whole idea of losing these dimensions and, you know, remaining three-dimensional and volumetric. And, I, I mean, I think that our bodies naturally uh, find recuperation. We exert in a particular way, but the body has a natural way to recuperate. And that's built into movement. What do you mean by phrasing. recuperate? Well, for example, if one holds a posture in a particular way, or if you exert yourself in a particular manner, your, your body's going to have to find a recuperation from that, right? Mean, to find homeostasis. Sure. So I think it's just natural that, you know, if, if we're emphasizing more digital mm -hmm. uh, movement style, like more linear right. digital movement, that we will become much more engaged in our private lives, in finding ways to be three-dimensional. Right. I feel that. I feel that the body will crave that, will want that. And whether it's through touch right. or, mm. you know, people going to yoga class or yeah. more dance. I mean, dance has had a huge revival in the United mm. States of all kinds of dance. Well, that's mm. one of the theories for why smartphones work, for the, for the haptic aspect yeah. for yeah. there being this thing to fiddle with all the time. You mm -hmm. just... Mm -hmm. have some connection to something external. So that's another, that's another, I don't know, this this might sound a little cynical, but I think with smartphones and with a lot of these technological gadgets, what we are also staring at, I guess, is a future where movement is inhibited. Yeah. Self-directed movement may not be inhibited, but when we are thinking of movement and gesture as ways of communicating and generating community, so to speak, right. creating human community, that kind of movement... I think suffers sometimes at the hands of the subjects that we are becoming being driven by these little tools. But then new kinds I, of symbols and new kinds of shared meaning through... Uh, sorry, so uh, so smartphones are giving us a lot of different kinds of patients now mm -hmm. sure. because of the repetitive movement mm -hmm. sure. of certain kinds. Mm -hmm. Like we have the smartphone thumb and the smartphone neck and mm -hmm. right. etc. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, the, um, also the computer. Mm -hmm. Right. You you yeah. spoke of inhibition. So, what what so is what it? I mean is, let's uh, of say, of course, one knows uh, what inhibition is. Yeah. So, but, what I mean by inhibition mm. here is that 
if we are always let's let's make this very blunt if we are always on our phones and mm-hmm. and doing something fiddling around with it there might come a point where in a social conversation we don't know how to gesticulate we don't know what to do with our bodies yes. right there's a certain kind of social awkwardness that creeps in because we have been so interiorized yeah. right. in terms of our relationship with the phone or whatever with the object whatever it might be it might be a laptop right so i don't have anything personal against the smartphone sure. it's and it's yeah. it's not even about the technology as such but it's the way we use it use it yeah. and the degree of it's use that, as well. yeah, i yes. agree It's yeah. the way and the degree. Yeah. Why are some of us somewhat more inhibited? I mean, is there such a thing as a dancer's body? Is there some? Is there somebody you look at, Deborah, and you know that? Okay, sure, he has a dancer, and you know that. Look at somebody, and conversely, say, here yeah. is one who's not. I mean, I can usually recognize if someone has had dance training, by the way they hold themselves in with regard to gravity. Oftentimes, how they flow. as they move through space but usually it has more to do with they're very clear about their orientation <laughs> in space mm. you know so they, they have know. a strong sense of verticality usually in right. any culture right also a dancer um, moves uh, different parts of the body in different directions at the same time mm-hmm. that is not very easy for somebody who has never danced because when we do exercises i find that some people just cannot synchronize their leg and their arm in the direction it's supposed to move whereas the dancers do it all the time so uh, they can synchronize their body different parts of their body moving in different angles so to say in synchrony with each other and is that something is that is that because something like that requires training it does require training and it requires a proprioception hmm. the 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 position sense right uh, every joint in our body has what is called proprioception that means awareness the joint that means if immediate. i close my eyes i should be able to tell the position of my knee mm-hmm. are there people who are unable to do that yeah uh, in fact after an injury the se- proprioception gets affected uh, like in ankle injury uh, we have to make them do proprioceptive exercises so that They, they become aware of, of, the, of, of the, the sense, joint, yeah, of, of the joint, yeah. You know what's interesting is Martha Graham. The uh, one uh, component of her technique was what she called contractions, which mm-hmm. is that the movement begins in the pelvic area, and that initiates everything for right. her. And she liked Asian dancers because they had wider hips, and she felt that they could do her contractions much more beautifully. Right. I mean, it's just a, an interesting <laughs> little note in terms of, you know, a dancer's body. And of course, there are all these debates: who who can be a yeah, ballet dancer? There was a huge debate in New York in the seventies or eighties about African Americans being classical ballet dancers, right. and it was really controversial. So when we talk about movement, stability is as important as movement. Mm-hmm. If one part of a body is stable, like we were talking about pelvic area, right. that part of your body, if it's stable, you can move your legs much better. Mm-hmm. Right. You can move your arms much better. Mm-hmm. But if the pelvis, it's like the seesaw. The center of the seesaw has to be stable in the ground for the seesaw to move very easily. But if uh, the uh, center of the body is not stable, then you know, you you cannot move your arms and legs in the so way. So the notion of movement kind of goes hand in hand with the notion of balance, almost. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Balance and stability. Mm-hmm. Balance, stability, mm-hmm. rhythm, rhythm. Yeah. What's the future, Snigda? What's the future of? Uh, is is there is there a trend that you see? 
hundred, two hundred, three hundred years out of where all of this is headed, and how we might move, and how we conduct a body, and what our postures are likely to be like. Would, it's, it's, I would, it's many uh, I would divide the question. people into two halves. Mm-hmm. There are some who are uh, are going to be very aware that the body needs to move, right. and they would move in that direction. And there are others, like uh, he was saying, uh, you know, who just are hooked to the all the gadgets, and they've stopped moving. Mm. So I think I would divide them into. It looks like you're giving some kind of an evolutionary benefit or advantage to the ones who are likely to move. Deborah will be pleased to hear that. What's the future, Orko? We'll end with you. Yeah, it's it's. What it's really, might Beckett really... say? What? Might... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Beckett. if you ask Beckett, the future is surely bleak. <laughs> How yeah, bleak the future is, is always. So was the present. So was the past. So, was the past. so <laughs> Beckettian would say, "Well, you can always it's never been very Beckett. good. So we might as well you not can always, be pessimistic." Always do better than Beckett. But, yeah. <laughs> but in the terms of like? the 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 future of movement, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't know. There's uh, again. I would perhaps uh, shift the terrain a little bit and again metaphorize and say that there's a certain way in which we live in a world of hyper movement, and that's not just metaphorical. Of course, that's literal as well. Right. Uh, both literally and metaphorically, we live in a world of hyper movement, and that has, to a certain extent, devalued the notion of stillness deep and thinking, slow, and thinking. which is slow. Yes, mm-hmm. and. I I really find amazing how the word slow has become such a bad word. It's almost there's a slow cinema. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There's there's in fact there 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 are categories like slow professors. Well, I'm clearly one of them, mm-hmm. and I would want to preserve a certain kind of slowness, if not stasis. Well, it's a is slow such a food. Thing? I'm thinking about that. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because choreographically, working with beginning choreographers, they often do not have a still moment in their choreography and I always point that out to them and as soon as they understand that and have moments of stillness something enormous happens and there's time for a breath there's a moment to to appreciate to take in you know Mm. is there such a thing as slow dance is there such a thing as oh yes of course yeah Yeah. I mean yeah is it difficult to move slowly why is it difficult to stay still if we look for example at the buto dance right I mean, they move micro slowly. And you talk about hyper movement. There, it's incredibly slow. It's, I did a Bhutto workshop and it was moving at the speed with which grass grows. That's the idea. It's very slow. Is it difficult moving, to move yes, slowly? Mo- yes. Uh, moving slowly is much more difficult. Much mm-hmm. more difficult. So if I tell somebody to move their knee, uh, if you move it fast, it's much easier. But if I tell them to move it slowly, it's much more difficult. That's when the legs start trembling and you really get a challenge to the muscles, especially the stabilizers of the knee. So is there is there such a thing as an optimal speed for different joints and different muscles and so on? Uh, or is, 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 why is it difficult to move the knee slowly? Because uh, when you're moving the knee slowly, the stabilizers of the knee, which are tiny muscles, mm-hmm. uh, come into play. So they are stabilizing the knee while it's moving. Right. So it's a very interesting thing. The knee is moving, but they are also stabilizing. Whereas when you move fast, it's usually the mobilizers that are working hard. Stabilizers are not working that hard. But all the injuries that you see in your clinic and so on, they're presumably a result of just moving fast. Yeah, but because the stabilizers are weak. 
most of the injuries are because the joint is not being stabilized by the tiny stabilizers well and therefore the movements occur uh, without the stability it's exactly like the seesaw right. so it can move very fast but if the center is uh, you know moving all the time it's not stabilized in the floor then the movement is not optimal Right. Right. Terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and thank you. We look Thanks. forward to having thank this you. one again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.